If you enjoy our videos and podcasts and would like us to continue putting out regular quality content, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview where you can donate monthly and in return you will get rewards ranging from early interview viewings, bonus clips, credited as a producer and much more. Thank you and enjoy. So Gary, when did you first become interested in aviation? Um, my dad was a uh, bomber pilot in the Air Force, and as I was a kid, and when I was 10 years old, my dad let me stay up and watch the TV series, 12 O'Clock High, and it was the only time I could stay up past, I think it was 9 o'clock or whatever it was, <laughs> uh, right after Peyton Place, which was uh, seditious, according to my dad, so I had to wait till the commercial was over, and then I got watching 12 o'clock high and I told my dad I said the guys that are flying fighters look like shooting at the bombers look like they have a lot more fun than the guys in the bombers getting shot at and I said hey I'd like to fly fighters and my dad said great idea and so that's how I got started. So why did you pick the US Air Force over the Navy? Uh, because of my dad and the most important thing is at the time where I was actually able to make decisions and look at things when I was uh, 19 or 18, 17 years old, the I saw the first F-15, the Eagle, and I wanted to fly the Eagle, and the Navy didn't have it, only the Air Force had it, so that's the reason why I flew the, uh, one with the Air Force. Awesome. So what year did you join the uh, U.S. Air Force, and can you tell us some of the aircraft you started training on? Sir, certainly. I, um, a matter of fact, this November, 40 years ago, I signed on the property as the Air Force to go through what we call UPT, stands for Undergraduate Pilot Training. And you start off with the T-37 as a basic jet. It's a, like a Cessna 150 on steroids. Yeah. And then uh, if you successfully complete that phase, which is about four to five months, then you go on to the T-38 and you learn to fly supersonic jets. Uh, which I did, and then I graduated on Halloween in 1981. <clears throat> wow. So, yeah, let's talk about that. I, I haven't talked too much about the T-38, but what was it like to fly? Because it seems like a bit of a sports jet. Oh, we, the saying was it goes fast sitting still. And <laughs> the T-38 is a rocket. It was a wonderful airplane to fly. What I enjoyed the most about it was that I didn't have the instructor pilot sitting right next to me, <laughs> swinging my oxygen cord around or whatever he would do. It was nice to have the guy behind you. And it was really strange because when you do some maneuver and the instructor pilot would say something, it was like the voice of God was coming from behind you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so, saying. That's great. Yeah. So it was, <clears throat> it was a rocket, man. You, you definitely had to have stay ahead of the jet, which was difficult at the time. And you had to move, do things fast because the jet was going warp nine. It was a fast jet. Yeah, so I loved it. I loved the T thirty eight. I had a lot of fun on that airplane. Formation flying was awesome. Man, you could tuck that thing in right next to the jet, and it just it was very stable in formation. And yeah, what aircraft did you hope to get posted to? Like, what what was your dream jet at the time? When. When we, at about the, uh, with one month left to go in training, somewhere around there, maybe three weeks to go, you have what's called assignment drop, what we did back in the 80s. And everyone would show up, and they would go through and give you your assignments. And we had 
one F-16, four F-15s, and eight F-4s come down. Wow. And my ranking in the, uh, in the squadron of training was such that I, I wanted an F-15, but I probably thought I was going to get an F-4. And I completely forgot about the OB-10 so that I was the last guy to get my assignment. So they had given out all the F-4s, and I was thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to go fly? <laughs> so you go up and you, you take a shot of, of whiskey, and then you salute the, the wing commander or the, whoever it was. And I looked at him, and I said, give me another one. I took another <laughs> shot. I saluted him again, turned around, and they said, uh, OB-10 to Simbok. And my two questions was, when I was standing there, just thrilled because I knew I was going to get to fly a fighter, was what's an OB-10 and where's Simbok? So I had no idea what I was doing or where I was going. And then I found out it was in West Germany. So that was a thrill. So what were your first thoughts of the OB-10? Man, that's an ugly looking airplane. Golly, just, I just couldn't it's not a beauty, it is it? first thought. And I thought, <clears throat> does this thing fly? And what are the two booms for and the engines? And I just, what a different kind of an airplane. And then when you sit in the airplane, when you actually get into it, I began to learn what a forward air controller does, and that was his primary role, was to control violence, is what we said, to control airstrikes. And when you sit in the cockpit, and it is laid out so well, and the canopies bow out, so they bow like this. So all you have to do is look down, and you can see almost straight down, almost oh, wow. pure vertically. You don't even have to bank the airplane much to be able to see anything that's below you for targets. And when you go to the range, I went to... OB-10 school at Patrick uh, Air Force Base in Cocoa Beach, Florida. Um, it was, it, you could tell this aircraft was designed to do this mission. Mm -hmm. And so as a weapon system, it was, it was by far specifically designed to specifically do this and it did it very well. Because before that, there were off the shelf aircraft like the Cessna 337, which was the yeah. O2, and then the Cessna tail dragger that was the bird dog deal one. But the OV-10 was designed just to do this, and it carried the rocket pods and an external tank underneath, which made it real easy to shoot. Um, it just, it was a, it, it, I was amazed at how well, like the F-15, when I transitioned it, it was designed to do air-to-air, -air, and that's what it did very well. And so the OV-10 did the forward air controlling. It was by far the aircraft for forward air controlling. Easy, yeah. easy to do, to employ as a weapon system, which makes it easier when you're flying the airplane. Because <laughs> you, you would end up flying with your knees. You would end up getting, because you're flying around, we're doing typically about three miles a minute, about 180 knots. And so you, you, would, end, you would be circling the airplane or whatever it was with your knees because you're too busy up here riding on the canopy because you'd have, you know, four flights of four fighters checking in and you would use a grease pencil and you'd write each one of the oh, wow. what's the call sign, what aircraft they had, what the ordinance are, and that was what the training was, is what ordinance is the most effective in what kind of troops in contact battle that you're having. So Gary, can you tell us a bit more about the FAC mission? What was it about? Well a FAC, a Ford Air Controller, the, the whole purpose is it was designed in Vietnam. The, it was actually done by two Marines in a garage. They designed this airplane. Amazing. Because they needed to find something that was better at doing its mission. And the whole idea is, imagine in Vietnam, everything's a jungle. 
So if you're flying a fighter, uh, a ground attack fighter, A7, A4, F4, whatever it is, um, you're going 500 knots. You're, you're going, I mean, you're going the speed of heat uh, for defensive purposes. Somebody's got to slow down and has actually got to find the targets. Typically, it's a troop in contact. Uh, could be as close as 1,000 meters, could be more. And to find out where the enemy is and where the good guys are. And that's where we would use radios with the Army, which is an FM radio um, or a VHF radio. <clears throat> and so you could get slow enough that you could find the actual targets in the jungle. And you could get low enough wow. to see them. Of course, shot at, which is not a lot of fun. So then we would roll in on the target and we'd shoot. We had two rocket pods full of uh, 2.75 white phosphorus. We call them Willy Peets white phosphorus rockets. So the rocket goes in and hits the target area and white smoke comes up through the jungle. Well, if I'm flying 500 knots, I can see a white smoke. That's easy uh, on a green background. And so as the forward air controller, I would then tell the fighters, hey, gunslinger, flight 201, you're clear to hit my smoke. And that would be, or if I miss the target, drop your bombs 50 meters south of my target. Whatever, um, but it enabled us to really find out where the bad guys actually are and then direct the fighters in to hit it. And the same thing when I flew it in um, Western Europe, there's a lot of green in Europe, <laughs> especially <laughs> in Germany. There's a lot of green. Um, and so the idea was similar, is that you would be able to throw a, a, a rocket down. They could find the target itself as, uh, if they're tornadoes, if they're uh, even 104s. I controlled Canadian F-104s. These guys are going really fast, and so you need somebody to slow down, find the target, put a uh, rocket on it, then the, uh, the bombers can find it and hit the target. Wow, I mean, what a mission. Um, but, yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you spent a while. It took you a long time to learn how to do this really well. When I finished pilot training, I went to Hurlburt, which is um, uh, near Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, in the Panhandle, Florida. And I spent a month learning how to drive a Jeep with the Army. Wow. <laughs> really? And we had night driving. And <laughs> it was really interesting. The Army is a different whole different world and but what you did learn is how they communicate on the radio because you have to translate fighter pilot talk which is real short real simple real quick and you know what it means to the army talk which is a lot more um scripted you have to say the right words and you have to say them in the right order and and it's it's an interesting experience so that month i learned how to talk army so that when I got into the OB-10, uh, the first couple of weeks were just getting familiar with the aircraft and getting checked out, make sure you can fly the airplane. Then you spent the other three months or whatever it was learning to control an air battle on the ground. How do you do this? And how do you mark a target? Because we didn't have the new gun sights they have now. It was just an iron sight. You roll in and you, you got to figure out how to shoot the rocket. Good news is rockets are accelerate through, so it's a little bit easier to hit the target. But it, that whole air-to-ground um, orchestration is what I spent the time learning. And then once you get to the squadron, that's where you perfect it. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Yeah, so let, I mean, I'm going to backtrack a bit here, uh, Gary, yeah. but uh, let's talk about your first flight. What was that like, your first trip in the OV-10? It was, um, wow, <laughs> because we didn't have a simulator. So the first time <clears throat> is in the airplane, and you have an instructor in the back, which was nice, because, you know, he's doing things like throw, pick up the gear, because you're... You're just so far behind the You're aircraft. So focused, yeah. It is amazing. Even though it's going a lot slower than a T-38, because it's all so new and you're like going, what, 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 where, what, huh, huh? Oh, yeah, let's fly the airplane. Um, the instructor gets gets you up to speed, helps you through that first flight. Um, it's a, what we call dollar rides. After you get done, you have to pay the instructor a dollar for letting him uh, <laughs> teach you how to go up and fly the airplane. Uh, it was mainly pattern work. You, uh, we went out to an area, did some aerobatics, so you kind of got a feel for what uh, what the aircraft does. How does it begin to talk to you? Because even the F-15, when you pull nine Gs or whenever you do things, it would shake a little bit, and you could you could tell something was going on. And that was the idea, is to get the feel. And um, I just remember how loud it was because you got those two big turboprop engines right. Right back there, you, you, we had to wear earplugs. Even with the helmet on, you could still hear that. Yeah, I mean, you had to, wow. or you'd go deaf. I mean, it was, those turboprops are loud. Then, uh, interesting note, the same engine that was in the OB-10, it was a Garrett engine, 700 shaft horsepower, which is the Marines get 715 shaft horsepower. Why do they get more? I don't know. <laughs> That's the exact same engine that is the uh, APU and the MD-80 that I flew when I was an airline pilot. Awesome. That was kind of sad. <laughs> but, uh, APU in the back that provides air conditioning on the ground is the uh, same engine that was in my OV-10. <laughs> what a small world, man. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> we digress here, yes. But uh, let's talk about, like, yeah, you mentioned the backseater there. What was the role of the backseater? The backseater, the Marine Corps employed, and the Air Force also, in Vietnam, uh, but the Marine Corps, even up to the Gulf War, because they flew one and they flew them in the Gulf War One, uh, was the uh, the person in the back was in charge of things like artillery fire, naval gunship fire. Uh, he would work on getting some outside sources to uh, put ordnance on the target, while the front seater is doing all of his uh, uh, job, uh, connecting with the Army unit on the ground. To find out where the bad guys are, so there were we were literally working in tandem. Once I knew where the bad guys were, then the backseater would do that. But in the Air Force, when I flew it in um, in Germany, I never flew with a backseater. The only time a backseater was there was an instructor. Oh wow! I didn't it. know that. Wow, that's yeah. Wow. And I I got checked out as an instructor pilot on it, and I will tell you the backseat is barren. There's nothing back there. There is the instrument panel. Uh, we still have a stick, so the Air Force allows the backseater to fly. Uh, but the instrument panel is uh, sparse compared to what I have up front in the front seat. So wow, yeah. So uh, could the Bronco carry any weapons? Yes, sir. We can carry. Uh, when I was in Europe, you could carry every non-nuclear NATO munition. Right. So whatever, and that's what made it so um, adaptable in Europe 
was that we could carry uh, any NATO ordinance, any U.S. ordinance. Um, it was uh, it ran because it was a turboprop. It ran on jet fuel, so you could JP4, Jet A, whatever was out there, you could put in the engine and fly it. Uh, um, and they had four 7.62 miniguns that it would carry. We never flew with them. The Marine Corps, I think they did, but I can't remember offhand, in Vietnam. And I assume everybody in Vietnam had them just for self-defense. But um, it's kind of funny when you see them sticking out and you go, if I fire these, all I'm going to do is tick everybody off. Do <laughs> 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 like, I yeah. really want to shoot and fire the guns on this thing? I'd rather fire the rocket because they have a little bit more impact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I'm going to get a bit nerdy here, Gary. Uh, Please, but, uh, I love it. I love yeah, it. I love it. Yeah. So, what kind of speeds and heights would the Bronco fly to? We we would typically uh, fly the OV-10 in Europe at at uh, three miles a minute, 180 knots. That and three miles a minute makes it really easy on calculating because it's easy to divide three into sixty, and yeah. you could. It was really nice. I understand in uh, Vietnam they flew it at 120. They needed to fly it slower for some reason. We flew it at 180. Uh, the airplane service ceiling is 25,000 feet, and I have been to 25,000 feet. Wow. And I stop indicating, you're going to love this, indicating only 105 knots. No way. On the window C-130, <laughs> trying to get the airplane to Greenland. from wow. Because we redeployed back to the States when they canceled our, uh, which is a whole different story. Uh, so I've been that high, and the airplane just does not fly up there, <clears throat> not very well. So we would typically stay around 500 feet in Europe. That's that was our operating area. We just didn't like to get up higher because of training, because small arms fire and everything else. You want to stay as low as you could. Yeah, of course. But whenever we deployed somewhere, we would probably go up into the um, up into the teens, up into 18, 15 thousand feet type deal. Uh, especially when you had to get over the Alps, when we went to Italy or to uh, Spain, we had to get up into the high teens, low low twenties. So wow, well, that's a lot more than I yeah. was expecting. I thought you'd stay down yeah, it, to it, ten thousand and below. Yeah, no, it it's it'll go up there, and because uh, you have to cross the Alps, and the Alps are pretty high, mm -hmm. so you got to get across that stuff. So yeah, we would we would, um, and so you'd wear an oxygen mask. You'd do all the normal stuff that you do when you fly high. Yeah. So, anyway. so obviously you, you mentioned like you're obviously flying in Europe, but like how much like um, interaction did you uh, like have with the RAF and other European nations? We worked. That's basically who we worked with the A10s a lot, obviously, because that yeah. was the that was the close air support CAS C A S close air support aircraft by far. The A10 was it, and it, the A10 was a new airplane when I was flying. It was okay. a fairly American. We worked a lot, like I said, with the Canadians and the F-104s. We worked with um, uh, a lot of the RAF with some of their F-4s, uh, which was sent, which was which was they, they they're pretty good. They <laughs> they because most of the F-4s in the Air Force were air-to-air -air F-4s until yeah. the F-15, the F-16s came along, and we'd work with the Netherlands and. Um, yeah, we worked with all NATO forces. Um, even we didn't. We tried to work with the. Uh, 
is it F1s that are from Spain? Is that what it was? I can't remember. Mirage F1s. Uh, they just because when we were in uh, Zaragoza, Spain, doing weapons training, but it just didn't it just didn't work out. We just couldn't get to work with them. But yeah, we've worked with um, like I said with tornadoes with uh, almost everything. Um, never got to work with a Vigan. Um, I'm just trying to think. We almost everything else we worked with. So, yeah, we, I loved Europe. Europe was by far my. Uh, I really enjoyed. I worked in the F-15 over in the Far East, and the Far East is is that area is okay. But man, I loved Europe. I just love it. I went there for my retirement vacation. Went back to Germany and looked at all the stuff and went to. Oh, wow all over Europe and I just absolutely love the way things are in Europe. So Gary, what's the best part of flying the OV10? What would you say? The best part was was running a close air support mission that was really difficult on a live fire range. Uh where you simulated that our the troops, whether it was NATO forces or American forces, it was just NATO forces. Mm-hmm. We didn't really know any distinction between U.S. and anybody else. But the the USAFE or whatever you want to call it, and the troops were in contact, and and they were very close, mm-hmm. and it was very difficult to get the air power in there. And the A-10 could do that kind of stuff with their thirty millimeter cannon Vulcan gun they could get in or their Mavericks and to take out tanks, to take out Russian tanks. And uh, when we did reforgers exercises, that was the most, you really felt good that you could, you could bring the air support in on for the army. Because we all know that you have to occupy the territory to win. You may win the air battle, but it doesn't really do any good until you put boots on the ground. There has somebody has to get in and take over the land, and so to be able to support the army so that their guys could get in and take the ground that was good. And the second part, by far, is formation. I love flying formation. <laughs> if we, if I could sit there, I, I could fly formation all day long. I just <laughs> the OV ten was really interesting. Thank. God, we changed them to green instead of that gray. Because when you're in the weather, the gray airplanes disappear in the disappear, weather. Yeah, when you're yeah. on the wing, that gets really, really old when you're focusing just on a wingtip light because that's the only thing you can see in the airplane. So at least when they're green and you're flying exactly. through the clouds, you can see them better. Exactly, yeah. But it sounds like you've had a, an amazing time on the OV-10. But uh, yeah, how many hours did you get on the type? I got, I, I know, a little over 750, I think. Wow. Somewhere between 750 and 800, I think, is what I've got. Wow. So, and yeah, this is... I've three years, so that was good. 